0: Welcome to the founders of Web3 series, by Live Ventures, and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're gonna to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're gonna to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Okay so today I'm really happy to welcome uh, a guest from Enigma, one of the co-founders John Kissigan. He and Enigma are somebody that we at Outlier have been working with for several months now on some really interesting projects. Um, So it's really exciting to have you here today uh, to talk through Enigma and your journey as a founder. Very exciting to be here Jamie. So um, to do a quick summary of your background, like your co founder, uh, Guy Ziskind, um, you both um, spent some time at MIT, albeit uh, you were at Sloan and uh, he was at MIT Media Lab. So, your own background uh, was at Sloan and prior to that, Northwestern, where you did a Bachelor of Science in Industrial Engineering. You also spent some time at McKinsey uh, working in Turkish capital markets and media, and you are. Kind of a second time founder, I believe, um, previous project was Street Dust and Exim Yes, uh,
1: that is that covers, I don't know, a, a 10 year period uh, pretty concisely.
0: <laughs> and um, given the name and the connection with McKinsey to Turkish markets, uh, I assume you are Turkish?
1: Yes, yes. I, uh, I'm from Istanbul. I grew up there and spent all my time until high school then went to, uh, went to school in the U.S., came back briefly, and then now I'm living in, uh, in the U.S. again. On the West Coast, right? Yeah, San Francisco right now. Okay.
0: So uh, as I understand it, the kind of origin story of Enigma was that uh, you met Guy at the Bitcoin Club at MIT um, where he was teaching a class, uh, and you began to discuss and explore possibilities ultimately leading into Enigma. So actually um, Enigma was Guy's research project.
1: When I met Guy, he was already working on Enigma and uh, I met him through the MIT Bitcoin um, circles. He was, I think, uh, presenting his work in, uh, in a Sloan class. And then uh, uh, this was spring of 2015, uh, the Enigma white paper came out and I'm not, uh, an author in that uh, Guy's primarily uh, the author of that, in I would say the summer of 15 and, um, and then guy was teaching this class in in and, in, in spring, uh, of our second year. And, uh, both me and my colleague Tor were in that class. And then after that, we just like, you know, kept in touch, uh, stayed in connection. Uh, we both graduated in 2016 and, uh, he went on to do Enigma. I had a six month uh, period where I was working on this project called Exim chain. And then eventually our uh, the, you know, roads crossed again uh, in 2017.
0: So it's really interesting, um, Enigma, as this kind of spin out from, from MIT. Obviously, that's a, a particular type of startup. I know in the crypto world, there's certainly in the US, uh, and from an investor perspective, a kind of almost preference for spin outs, very technical teams spinning out of these kind of top tier Ivy League, uh, campuses as a spin out from academia you know, what do you think is different about that journey and and how did you find you were perceived by in, investors and, and and kind of customers when you were when you first came out to market
1: yeah so um we had uh, two major rounds of fundraising uh, one was in the summer of two thousand and sixteen before I was fully involved and I think at that point Enigma was, uh, but more perceived as an academic project from, uh, you know, uh, more traditional venture capital firms. And then uh, there's a second part, which I was more involved in, which is the, uh, you know, the token sale part. At that point, um, I think uh, it, was, it was beneficial for us because, A, we had been doing a lot of work in the blockchain space uh, as an academic, as a project with academic uh, background. And um, so that was helpful. And in the first round, I'm not sure, uh, like I wasn't a part of those conversations, but I do remember that uh, when I first joined uh, and we were working on, uh, when I was working on business development part of things, that we had this cool technology that we would go and talk everyone about. But uh, at the time, people don't really, didn't really know what to do with it. So um, I, I, I think in our case, it's fair to say that in our early days, especially when we were dealing with enterprise, we were this, uh, you know, kind of a hammer looking for a nail uh, situation, as most yeah. people criticize, like, you know, blockchain. Uh,
0: a very common theme. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess so, so we talk a little bit about the innovation itself and obviously the way that the project described itself has evolved, presumably al- along that journey of something that is, I guess, one of the challenges when you solve a, a fundamental technical problem and it is, you know, generalized or generalizable, um, the problem is how do you then translate that to be relevant to an industry or, or a particular use case? But you know, generally, um, is it fair to summarize um, the work you're doing as a, a blockchain-based protocol specializing in privacy technologies that allow this kind of end-to-end scalable dApps and at the heart of that, the innovation is what you refer to as um, secret contracts. So that is uh, allowing people, companies to perform uh, privacy preserving computation and to enable this secure data sharing. Yeah, I, that, that's an accurate
1: description. And um, yeah, I, I think um, the like tying back to your previous question, uh, that's exactly what we do. But um when we first came up with this, like for example, people would have so uh, privacy and uh, you know and performance or usability usually uh, you know come at some uh, some off And uh, like one problem that uh, we initially had was like people would expect us to do highly performant things, like running like a Hadoop database with uh like privacy preserving techniques like for like multi party computation and you know that that was like not possible still today is not possible so i think uh when you talk about like you know performance and generalizability early on we had expectations from uh like you know enterprise partners that we were working with to um to have you know extremely high performance requirements but also have privacy which is in the
0: software privacy world, uh, is somewhat unheard of. And so there's this kind of trade-off that the world faces at the moment in almost every domain, really, which is it, it's kind of either privacy or usability, and non non more environment is that true than than blockchain? It'd it be maybe worth just explaining the the multi-party computation piece. So I know you said that initially you kind of went down that path when you were looking for taking the product to market, trying to translate it into, uh, I guess, a language and a use case that people understood the pain point. Initially, when you were speaking to Enterprise, it was around multi-party computation. Could you could you maybe explain what multi-party computation is ha- and how your approach with secret contracts is different? Multi-party
1: computation is a, is a software-based encryption method uh, similar to homomorphic encryption where Technically, what you do is say I have a piece of data, we uh, divide this data to multiple pieces and send it across the network. And in order for that data to become uh, relevant, uh, by that I mean like you know, using the computation or, um, or, or like you know, be displayed, we would need say uh, like 50 of the 100 participants in the network, obviously numbers are illustrative, to come together and um, and and perform this computation, so that's um, that, that's like the basic uh, of it. That's, that's what multiparty computation means. It's it's similar to like you know Shamir secret sharing that uh, people in the crypto world sometimes use around uh, custody applications, uh, but the whole idea is one party alone cannot see or cannot leak the data. So it has to be a, a group efforts to.
0: Make the encrypted data be usable. And what was broken about multi, multi-party computation that, that needed a different approach? The problem
1: is a scaling of such software cryptographic techniques. I think one way to look at it is um, one can either choose a specific application and work really hard to optimize that. So if you look into what um, Zcash is doing with zero knowledge circuits, is you know they have a specific use case and, and you know, they're, they're improving on that but it's, it's just you know sending uh, and receiving coins uh, in a privacy preserving manner. So in our case, um, since we're looking at computations, uh, which is uh, arguably a larger domain than just sending and receiving funds, it's really hard to identify like, one specific use case and, and really really get performant in that. Uh, we were looking a lot of like in, in fraud detection kind of um, uh, use cases where, you know, company A has some data, uh, if they merge it with company B, then they can do more uh, effective fraud detection, but they can't because of sensitive nature of the data right now. And uh, so that was our use case when we were like uh, having our enterprise focus but still even with that, like the computations that were involved, I don't want to get too technical, but like required saving some name in memory and propagating that across every comparison. So just to give you an idea, like we were uh, at the time when we were doing MPC, or this is first after 2017, we were much more performant than all academic p- papers out there, maybe like an order of magnitude, but still like, you know, something like uh, doing a linear regression would take us maybe, uh, uh, I don't want to give a wrong number, but maybe like 10,000 times slower than like doing this with plain text. And when you have, you know, enterprise customers who need to move fast, etc., like this, the scale issue became a big limitation for us.
0: And so that's interesting, you know, in an academic realm or theoretical realm, you know, you'd, you'd solve the problem. Um, and maybe we could just talk a little bit about what was different, you know, how secret contracts solve for those problems in approaches around multi-party computation. But then you had to somehow scale that in a, in a commercial setting. So maybe we could talk about what's different, what's different about the approach, how, how that solves for it, and then how you've gone about scaling that in a, in a commercial environment. We
1: have uh, changed... So our, our mission has always been, uh, you know, uh, this the goal to push privacy preserving computation for better data security and better privacy. And uh, we're still working on that mission, but what, what has changed is how we achieve that. So instead of doing multi-party computation, which is a software based encryption method, we have taken a hardware approach which has its trade-off. This hardware approach is called a trusted uh, execution environment. This is uh, you know, similar to the fingerprint readers in our phones in that computers or servers have a separate enclave, separate uh, processor that is only accessible by like, you know, that enclave alone. So it's almost like when you send your fingerprint to your iPhone, your fingerprint never goes to Apple, but your fingerprint is only processed within this, uh, you know, within this uh, enclave. Uh, this also, uh, this technology also exists on like Intel chips that have been uh, released in the last four years. So what we have done as a change in in direction is we've learned to use this uh, chip and built an operating system on these chips, such that. Um, you know, a user can encrypt uh, data locally on their device, send it to this enclave in encrypted form. It's uh, only decrypted inside the enclave and uh, the security guarantees of the enclave ensure that the, the privacy that can decrypt this input is generated inside the enclave and cannot be leaked. So, so that, was, that was a change in approach. Obviously, like when you do this kind of change in approach, uh, the computations become uh, like much faster. You are now closer to the performance you get when you run computation on plain text data.
0: Right, and so this is this kind of off-chain computation, um, and the secret smart contracts are the things that then link uh, what happens off-chain, where you can get higher performance with what happens on-chain. And can you kind of talk through talk through that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, so uh, like. What I described as, like you know, the trusted trusted execution environment is a is a way to do privacy preserving computations. What I mean, this can you know work as a, as a single server. This can work as a, you know as a blockchain. So what we've done uh, with the Enigma blockchain, we have a network of nodes that run these trusted execution environments, and uh, that's how you become a node. So. It is not like an off chain solution. This is part of our chain. It's um, it's just that the, the nodes need uh,
0: the special hardware to participate in the network. Okay, understood. And I know that you've been working linked to this around governance and mm-hmm. the idea that smart contracts and some of the work and problems you've been solving for can also be applied to governance issues more generally, in the decentralized space, uh, in particular, auctions and the idea that you could have decentralized exchanges for computation, data computation, and potentially even even dark pools as well, right?
1: Yeah. So there are, um, there are a couple of interesting applications. I think um, one thing that we have figured out as we you know dive into um, building this blockchain was privacy is not only relevant for handling sensitive data and, you know, opening or allowing new applications to be implemented into the blockchain ecosystem, but it also creates significant usability gains to uh, existing applications that we use in a decentralized world today. Some of these you you touched upon, uh, for example, things like governance, it's important to keep, uh, you know, the anonymity of the votes, So what's, uh, or uh, at least during the time of tallying in order to make sure that, you know, people are not discouraged from voting if they see, you know, the tally going in one direction. So the solution space that we had seen uh, revolved around using this uh, concept of a commit reveal, which means as a user, you would first commit uh, your vote. You, You would take the hash of your vote and commit to it. So no one could understand like what your commitment is. And at a later time, you would reveal your comments saying, hey, this is actually had voted yes, and here's my proof to it. Uh, and that's how, you know, uh, voting was uh, supposed to be done. And um, if you think about user experience, like you don't really want to go and, uh, you know, do a two-time interaction. Actually, like we've heard from projects working on this, that's, uh, you know, that issues of people committing their votes, but forgetting to reveal them, et cetera, et cetera. So one thing that um, you know, we uh, hope to bring to the, to the governance part is you can have, like, using these secret contracts, you can have a single interaction from, a, from the user. You can cast your encrypted vote to the Enigma network. And you know, when the time comes, the network can automatically uh, decrypt your vote, uh, have the tally. And uh, show the results, you know, 60s, yes, 14, or whatever, to the entire network without revealing user users' vote at any time. So what we thought was like, oh, let's focus on privacy and anonymity on the votes. We found that actually the value we brought. Was more on the usability side because at this point, uh, you know, decentralized governance don't really involve very, very, you know, critical votes like your political orientation or whatnot. So that was like one area where you know we see that privacy and usability, especially in the Web three space, go hand in hand. And there are many more applications like this. Um, this applies to the gaming space a lot. We were in uh, in Eat Waterloo, I believe, six months ago. And uh, there's a team who was doing contract work for Cheese Wizards. I'm not sure if you remember this game, but uh, it was by Dapper Labs, the, the folks who were behind CryptoKitties, uh, and they built Cheese Wizards, which is uh, you know, like a glorified rock, paper, scissor game that uh, you, know, you would play with, with wizards. And their implementation, because when you're playing rock, paper, scissors, if you go first and I know what, you've, uh, what your move is and I can easily make the winning move, So they also refer to this commit and reveal technique where, you know, you would choose your moves, you would submit them. And the other part would choose their moves, submit them both in like, you know, commitment form. And then uh, once commitments are submitted, each player would have to reveal and then, you know, you would calculate the winner and like a single game of rock, paper, scissors could take up to four hours or so. So a team there took the game logic, built it with Enigma, uh, that, you know, we removed the requirement to do the reveal, reveal and they were able to cut the game length by like uh, at least 50%, which means more people get to play, there's more activity and it's like, you know, it's helpful for
0: this game. So uh, the, these things actually go hand in hand a lot. So you guys have also been working on transactional privacy, on-chain transactional privacy. Um, could you tell us more about that? Sure, we call our
1: transactional privacy efforts Salad. Uh, that's the name of the uh, of the product. We call it Salad because privacy is healthy, and uh, Salad is also another great example of uh, where you know privacy can bring uh, usability to uh, blockchain applications. Um, what we do is slightly different than uh, the zero knowledge implementations, um, which require a user to create a proof and then, um, and then verify that they have that proof in order to mix their funds between address A and address B. Uh, so again, this is like a two-step process uh, similar to common trivial. We replace that with a single user interaction using our network. So what the user does is um, the user would send in the recipient address that they want to see the funds go to into a secret contract. And the secret contract would take in addresses from, say, 20 users, randomize them, and then submit those uh, those 20 randomized addresses to the contract that's holding the deposits. And what this effectively means for the user is you do one transaction and your funds are are mixed. And this has been extremely helpful for us in uh, pushing the conversation with uh, Web3 wallets like uh, MetaMask and uh, and MyEther wallets, because our way of creating transactional privacy matches the the way their users are used to sending funds. Again, this is going to be a, a high focus
0: area for us going forward. So I know when we're talking about a lot of this stuff, it might seem quite navel-gazing in that these are problems, we're solving for problems that are very niche, uh, very particular to Web3 and the crypto space and, and the rest of the world doesn't really care about. But you know, clearly these are foundational problems that are critical to solve in the Web3 space in, and around decentralized governance. So. I know you guys have been exploring a, no- a number of different domains to apply these technologies in. On the one hand, you talk about big impact research areas, you know how you can allow industries to begin to share data, to run computation, and presumably to, to share in the benefits of that. And then equally, uh, you've also been looking at how you could begin to apply Apply these technologies to the world as it is today in a kind of web two context. So, what what you might do with Facebook data? Um, so, maybe we first kind of spend a bit of time talking about these big impact research areas. Uh, I know that um, Corona is very topical at the moment, and that's something you've been actively participating. In.
1: Yeah. No, I think um, so. Before diving into the details, I think one thing that uh, we can say is like either web 3 or you know web 2 there is uh you know there is a trust model and what changes in web 3 is a trust model so like a very high level and basic example is uh, we can think about what bitcoin has brought is is taking the role of a bank which would you know process me sending you money and distribute that to uh you know to uh, thousands of people, anyone who wants to run a Bitcoin node, and 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 what that means is the trust model changes. In that, I used to trust the bank to do this, and also with like with my data. Now I need to trust uh, the nodes to do what they're supposed to do, and there are you know economic incentives built into it for them to be good actors. And then you also have to trust like you know uh, these these random uh, people on the internet with your data. I guess where we see our work can bring value is, is around this trust factor. Who do we trust uh, with our data and, and to what extent? Now looking into like, you know, like some of the data and privacy issues that we've been, I guess, seeing again and again in the past couple of years in the, in the Web2 space, like we know that our data has been used without our consent uh, in ways that, you know, we we do not condone. I think Facebook is a great example of that. And um, I I don't think that 99% of us are aware of how, say, our cell phone location data is being used. So there is a fundamental issue about, okay, like, how do we use the data? Who gets access to it? Is it being used in the right way? And this applies to you know, either institutions that control our data from like a user's data being controlled by other institutions, but it also is, you know, is interesting when you have two institutions who, you know, can uh, benefit from sharing data. So I think this is uh, an interesting point, like how do we uh, think about security of our data? And the, the Corona example you gave um, kind of fits, uh, like you know, this realm where there is a lot of contact tracing, or I would say, digitally, uh, digital contact tracing efforts that are being proposed uh, with different privacy features. And um, we have um, lately volunteered to take some of our expertise in privacy-preserving computation to build a better, uh, a more privacy-preserving way of doing contact tracing. Um, and um, you know we are uh, trying to work with um, some applications that have location data to, to you know to run these analyses. What we're trying to do there is not blockchain based, uh, but uh, we have a, a server that users can share their location history and um, like diagnosis status uh, in a, in a in an encrypted way. And, and consider this API as a like secure data storage and computation platform where your data is stored. And um, once you and like you know other people like yourself have contributed data to this uh, API, the API without our access or our control can uh, can decrypt that data, uh, run computations on it, and give you insights in the context of. SafeStrace, which is uh, the name of our efforts, uh, you know, you get to um, learn as an individual whether you've been in close proximity with someone or you also get some, let's say, um, uh, more macro analysis on how people who have tested positive have been moving around the city. Say you need to go do grocery shopping, you can see which grocery shopping, which grocery store has lower risk based on people's movement. And like all this can be done without revealing any user privacy. We were, we were encouraged to do this because we saw there were, um, government, governments, uh, you know, uh, initiate efforts, like say in Israel that does this and has zero user privacy. So we're like, okay, like, you know, we can actually build
0: this using what we have and provide better privacy guarantees. So this is the big thing at the moment. I mean, it's very zeitgeist in that everybody's talking about this trade-off with privacy if we want to be able to respond to contain Corona. Is, is this approach that you're talking about something that would augment, say, what Google and Facebook are working on? Or does it, does it provide a distinct alternative?
1: I think it's Google and Apple. They just released something uh, this past Sorry, Friday. Yes. Um, no worries. So uh, it's actually a different uh, approach to it. I think it's, it's really good that you raise it. The Google and Apple approach has a different security model. I think it's, it's very clean in that you and I say we both have our Bluetooth devices. If we're in some close proximity, your device sends your device ID to my device, and my device sends my device ID to your device. And say five days from today, I get tested positive, then I Publish my, let's say, uh, user ID or device ID, which is randomized, say, every day to a server. And you can query that server to see whether the user IDs that you've been close to have been tested positive. So I think this is a completely separate, uh, you know, uh, architecture. I really like the model because it is... It has really good privacy design. If you can randomize these user IDs well enough, uh, no information really leaks. However, this is only useful for individual analysis or like letting individuals know after the fact. There's no location information tied. That's why the privacy is very strong. But also this is not really helpful for say healthcare officials who want to respond to a high risk area or this is not useful for me as an individual to take preemptive measures on like, you know, deciding my routes, avoiding people with symptoms, et cetera. So it's a, it's a completely different approach, but I think what's important is it's important that big players like Google and Apple are coming into this market because our approach focuses on location data. And if you think about location data, location data already exists within big companies, big mobile apps, all that. And, and what we see right now is new applications coming up and they're trying to get adoption. They, uh, you know, they're trying to get, to get users to have, like, build data, et cetera. Whereas, you know, if we're able to tap into these existing companies, like say like Foursquare's, Yelp's of this world, et cetera, then we already have this data and then we can bootstrap it. Um, so. In that, I think it's a good call to action that, like you know, big companies can can think about: Hey, can I let my user download their location data, or can I let my user use their location data in a way that they can opt in to participate into this, uh, you know, COVID, I would say, um,
0: tracing efforts. So, if we kind of build on that, we, we zoom up a bit, and you know, Corona is just the the, the live instance of this where you have a web two approach and a web three approach, are they distinctly different? Do you think these web two data platforms, data monopolies can transition into web three or, or is, is that impossible? Is it, is it web three fundamentally different to, um, to the business model?
1: I think, uh, so from a business model perspective, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, the way I see it is I think these two worlds, uh, at least from data side, will converge eventually because if you look into Web3, it's all about, you know, self-sovereignty, giving users more control over things they do on the internet. And uh, if you look into just the data aspect of Web2, oh, uh, especially with GDPR in Europe, you know, technically speaking, I, as a user of an application or a product, I should be able to download whatever data I have. I mean, we're not there yet, but that's, that's the direction that we want to head towards. So at that moment, if I'm able to use, say, Foursquare to, you know, get my location data such that I can, uh, you know, use it for COVID or whatever purposes, as as soon as I have access to that data, then I can use that data in in uh, in, in the Web three worlds, and uh, that's like you know where the uh, the Oracle come into play. I think um, the Chainlink is exploring some of these uh, these areas, but I think Web two data will eventually make its way into Web three. It it will be used for certain uh, use cases, um, and it will provide value. For example. Uh, like we can use like identity in the Web3 world is a big issue. How do you do identity? How to do, how do you verify people? All that. If you think of identity uh, um, as like, you know, different, let's say a a large spectrum where like one end is like Hey, I need my identity to vote. And then one end is like, Hey, I need to prove that I'm not a robot. Then I think like using Web2 data, solves a big portion of that spectrum where like you know if you can use your Facebook data, uh bring it into an algorithm that say runs in a in a privacy preserving network like like Enigma based on that we could uh determine you're uh not an actual bot but a human being and then like you know issue like a non-fungible then you can use that non-fungible to interact in the in the web3 world. Obviously this is not as safe as, hey, I'm uh, junk segment, I'm going to vote in the next election,
0: but you know there is there is a there's a role for web two data. And and in, in addition to that, Enigma has a token. You know, you've gone to great pains to to bring that to market. Obviously, being pre- predominantly based in the US, you've had to deal with the SEC and that kind of high level of regulatory oversight that that's not necessarily present elsewhere but you know you've still been insistent on the token being a fundamental part to the solution why is that why why a token why is it it's so critical that you would go through the pain of of working and dealing with the sec to try to bring that to market
1: yeah so that was definitely a very tough process for us and we're glad that it's behind us and and we can focus on actually innovating in our space um i think a token like when you look into a blockchain network where you know there needs to be network participation we're not talking about just an application you kind of need to have a a token or a coin that ensures that there are the right incentives for the network participants to act, you know, uh, how they should be acting. And that's like the, the broader theme of crypto, you know, crypto economics. Because when you have a, you know, I just gave you an example of, um, of us doing this work for uh, COVID-19 uh, in a non-blockchain setting. Setting up a server, say that's on IBM cloud with, you know, uh, the right trust model is very, very easy what becomes hard is when you set that up and you know anyone who wishes to participate can participate in this network then you know attacks become more of an issue you need to think about you know dishonest actors and how they can try to interfere with what you're trying to do so in a world like that you know the, the token creates an incentive such that okay like you know I have a, I have a reason to act in an honest way, because I will earn these tokens. And if I earn these tokens, you know, that, is, that covers my opportunity cost,
0: hopefully, of, of participating in this network.
1: So, so to us- a,
0: dis, a disincentive as well, right? So a cost to malicious behavior. Exactly, if you're holding, the, I mean, within
1: the proof of stake network, right? If you, are, uh, if you already have to hold a lot of these things to attack the network, then technically speaking, you attacking the network would be detrimental to you and to your holdings as well so so a token needs to exist if it's a network that is truly decentralized
0: i i don't know how much you can talk through this but it would be good to understand how you manage that engagement with the sec i know you've now transitioned to to cosmos and presumably the network it very deliberately has certain characteristics in its, in its design and execution to allow you to have a functioning token. Can you, can you talk us through the, the thinking there? Uh,
1: sure. I think one thing that we learned after this, um, you know, the, after this process is, we need to be you know, very, very careful in the decisions that we make. And uh, we need to make all decisions in a decentralized fashion. So um, as you mentioned, we launched a Cosmos based blockchain um, approximately around two months ago. The launch of the network happened with participation of over 20 different uh, stakeholders, including outlier uh, ventures. And uh, the new network has um, a native coin that we call Secrets. Secret is, um, you know, uh, the governance ensures governance of the Enigma blockchain. Uh, so all the governance decisions are made with secrets in a, in a decentralized way. We have changed our role compared to like, uh, I would say maybe six months or a year ago, where at this point we are a development team that builds new features uh, for the blockchain based on what we see fit. But, uh, you know, whether what we build gets implemented, uh, will be determined by, you know, um, the governance decisions that secret holders do. So at this point, we're just building and proposing and any kind of execution of what we propose and adding this into the, to the Enigma network is solely based on uh, the discretion of secret holders and um, like other folks can also propose uh, network improvements and that can be um, uh, voted upon. So I think uh, what I'm trying to say is we have a much more decentralized approach than what we had six months ago. And uh, we're just one of the many stakeholders in the ecosystem right now.
0: And it sounds like a, a logical pathway anyway, right? I mean, I, I imagine this is something that you you were aspiring to realize anyway. It just happens that perhaps it's, it's had to be accelerated
1: yes yes we always wanted to think about uh, decentralized governance um, I think uh, two things have played into it obviously us using cosmos technology helped us implement this in a much faster way and obviously like you know when you have major like uh, things going on like force measure you have to re reassess certain uh, you know certain options and you know make decisions that are not only, not only reactive, but also are for the better for the better health of this project going
0: forward. So, obviously, in that use case, the Corona use case, you're talking about how individual citizens can can share information. Uh, I know the Outlier Labs team have been working with you on how that could be extended to enterprise and corporations working on something called the Cross Enterprise collaborative analytics. Could you, could you explain a little bit more about that? Indeed. Um,
1: as, yeah, as, as we mentioned, the, um, the secure data sharing involves different parties sending data into the secure storage and computation platform. In the case of uh, SafeTrace, uh, it's uh, you know, patients, but also in the, in the realm of enterprise, this could be different companies, uh, this could be different business units. Uh, the work we 've done uh actually uh was an inspiration for for safe trace, where you know we create a, we create an environment for two telco players to share location data in a privacy preserving way such that they could drive business insights as to where to you know build cell phone towers and um, uh, for better coverage um, and um we also see this this use case being uh, or, or this technology being very relevant to solving issues around frauds, whether it's user fraud or, uh, or driver fraud in the uh, share ride economy and, and, and the delivery economy. So this is a, a very promising area.
0: Yeah, well look, thanks so much for your time. Um, we'll, we'll have to wrap up there. I know um, the Outlier Ventures Labs team have been doing some work with you on Uh, something that's called the cross enterprise collaborative analytics, which was again around um, data sharing. So people should um, should check that out. But I think it's going to be really interesting watching this pathway to decentralization, uh, increasingly having, you know, roadmap both informed and potentially even executed on, on by the, by the wider community. So thanks so much for sharing your, your journey with us and um, and good luck. Thanks, Jamie.
1: It was a pleasure to be uh, on your podcast.
0: If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.